Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Mark chapter 7. The title of today's sermon is The Doors of the Banquet Hall Have Swung Open. Follow along as I read the passage set before us that will comprise our study, starting in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet, he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed the demon having left. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for your word. We continue to marvel at our Savior, his love, his compassion, his ability to cast out demons, to have utter control, sovereign control. We ask, Lord, that you will teach us here this morning exactly what's going on in this little parable, this analogy of of children and dogs. We ask, Lord, that you would have the Spirit enlighten us and guide us. Pray that you be with your shepherd. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of an interesting passage when you think about it, just reading this and this interaction with Jesus. It seems like to be another a miracle, another casting, and, and I don't want you to get so used to the reality of what he's doing here. Every one of these are, are profound. When Jesus heals, he heals, and he is defying nature. He's defying what's going on, and even the spiritual world will bow down to him. Our passage this morning is, is, however, is much more than than just a healing and the faith of of a mom. It has deep theological truth behind it. 
It's really a, a passage about evangelism. It's about God's per- progression of revealing his salvation to not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. It's a passage about to whom God saves and shows the faith of a woman who in the contriteness of her heart pleads for Jesus to have mercy on her daughter and save her. It really is a remarkable passage when you unfold it and you look at it. But I think it's helpful for us to kind of understand the narrative with a little bit of theological understanding of what's going on here. And so I want to set up the text before we dive into it. And I think what will happen, and hopefully what it did for me, is I just marvel at this great Christ. His kindness of our God, who not only to save the Jew, but also the Gentile. Remember, Mark writes with a, a Gentile bent. He is trying to help them understand. And so he's given us great clarity in this gospel about explaining some maybe even Jewish customs so that we can understand them. His desire is for them to see the Jewish Messiah, who he is, and why he's the only one who can save them. He wants us to understand that Jesus and his salvation is not just a Jewish thing. That is mercy, and that his grace is extended to us, even the Gentiles. So how did we get here to this point where where Jesus shares his gospel truth to a Gentile woman far from the lands of Israel who would be despised, at least in the Jewish religious eyes, as not only is she is a Gentile, Matthew tells us she's a Canaanite. She, She is somebody who they would oppose. And being in her presence would be a defiling nature to them. I think it's helpful as you go back to the pages of scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, to see how God's setting all this up. Remember when God chose Abram to be the father of his nation in which he would call Israel, he intended that people group, that nation, would be his chosen people, would be his chosen nation in such a way that that other nations would see the living God of, of that nation and would repent of their false idols and come to the living God. And so God sets up a covenant that is given to Abram and it's often repeated in the book of Genesis so that we get an understanding, but it first is shown to us in Genesis chapter 12. Look at the screen where it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you. I will curse and get this and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Pretty remarkable. God cutting this covenant, Abram doing nothing but, but yet being a willing servant in the midst to be the, the, the forefather of, of this great nation. God changes his name and, to Abraham and, and, and he sets him forth. But the purpose of the covenant was that they would be a blessing 
that they would be something of, of, of God's might to display his glory. And when other nations would see Israel and their God, the intention that God wanted for his nation is that other nations would come to him through his, through his chosen nation. But it doesn't just stop there. He sets up Levitical law. He, speaks, he sets apart this nation to be so utterly different than the world that it would be clearly seen that the God of Israel is different than any other nation by how they lived, how they talked, how they went about things. He wanted them to be holy as he is holy. And so Israel was set apart by God and his, and his special people as his special possession. And they were set apart from, from all the nations for a specific purpose. A purpose to come to faith in the only true and living God. Isaiah 42, 5 through 8 tells us that. Look at the screen again. It says, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Why? To open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God called Israel in righteousness and to be a covenant, a demonstration of his grace to all the people. A light to the nations to open blind eyes, to save them, to bring them into his kingdom. But there's a problem. The problem for the nations were that they had all these kinds of religion. They were engulfed in deep paganism. Thus, Israel was planted and given to the world for, for the reality that they needed to repent and turn to the one and true living God. And then... In the progression of God's revelation, you have Jesus Christ, where only through Jesus a person can be saved. There is no salvation in any other. All this seems like a simple plan, doesn't it? All this seems simple for Israel to follow. They had everything going for them. They had the living God on their side. It became a problem. The Jews were unwilling to embrace this plan in light of their own selfishness, their own sinfulness. I mean, they made it very difficult for people or even other nations to repent and come to the living God, did they not? They made proselytes go through this rigmarole where, where even they were kind of treated as second-class citizens. They saw themselves as privileged and were selfish with God's grace. A great example of that is for you to, to look at the book of Jonah. 
I mean, you look at that, that is the heart of Israel, where you have a prophet who is not willing to go to Nineveh, a Gentile city, and, and proclaim Christ. He goes the other way and runs. Why? Because he did not want those pagan Gentiles to come to know the grace and the mercy of the living God. Israel had a heart of much like Jonah, who often ran from their, their responsibility to be a light, to bring hope, to bring a message of, of forgiveness of their sin, and show them the living God. They hated the idea of Gentile salvation in Jonah's day, and guess what? They, they rejected it as well in Jesus' day. They saw the Gentile world as cursed under divine judgment, and they alone were the ones who would receive the great benefits of salvation. I think there's a small lesson in that. I mean, I read from Ephesians chapter 1 and the joy of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, and sometimes we ourselves, even today, as Gentile Christians, feel like, you know what? I'm blessed. This is for me. I'm not going to share it with anybody else. Listen, you were saved to share you were saved to proclaim Christ. You were saved to, to proclaim the goodness and the kindness of, of grace and mercy that has been given to you and what you have experienced. Or how about this? Oh, I'll share the gospel with people, but listen, I got privilege in the kingdom. We walk around with our nose in the air thinking that you know what, I'm better than the Gentile dogs in which I'm sharing the gospel to. Both of those are hard issues. The thing about it is that this wasn't the attitude of our Lord. Scripture is clear. There's only one God for the whole world, and there's only one Savior for the whole world. I think of the passage in John chapter 4, verse 39 through 42. It reads there, from that city, many of the, the Samaritans, Gentiles, believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and, and know that this one, this Messiah, this anointed one, this God-sent one is indeed the Savior of the world. I mean, that's the reason why you have the Great Commission in Matthew and in, 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 in these Gospels, in Luke. Matthew 28, go there, what? Into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature, right? Every person. Luke in his gospel, in Luke chapter 24, concerning the Great Commission, says it this way. He says, he, Jesus, said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And then it ends with this, beginning with Jerusalem, beginning with the Jews. 
And as you look through your Old Testament and kind of comb through it, and you're understanding what God is doing with the progression of his, of his chosen people as well as this salvation, the Old Testament gets specific, telling us of Gentile nations who will experience God's salvation. I think of like Psalm 80, 87, verse 4. I mean, this is so clear. I shall mention Rahab. Remember Rahab? Was she a Jew? She was a Gentile. I shall mention Rahab in Babylon, a Gentile nation, among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre, which, by the way, Tyre is mentioned in Mark chapter 7, and it's very significant, but in the fulfillment of what's going on here, but and Tyre with Ethiopia, both Gentile nations. Salvation. Salvation is always intended to be to the world. So much so, in the culmination of the word of God, when you get to the book of Revelation, where Jesus sits on his throne for eternity, we come to a passage at the end of Revelation chapter 21, and we see the marvelous aspect of the nations coming into the kingdom amongst their nation groups. The word of God says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Completion. The end time, the eternal state Nations coming with their own nation groups and they're bringing the glory of that particular nations and laying it at the feet of the Savior. Why? Because he deserves all glory. It's remarkable to me as you go from cover to cover, book to book, and see the inspiration and the progression of salvation, you clearly understand very clearly that God wanted to save both Jew and Gentile. And by the way, there wasn't a different salvation for one group or the other. It was the same. Why? Because there was one Savior. All that to say that the doors of the banquet hall of God's salvation has swung open both to Jew and Gentile. And that is what's at heart in our passage this morning. In the midst of this narrative of Jesus showing compassion, we see this remarkable faith of this woman just pleading Christ for, for, for healing for her daughter, but at the heart of this is that he gives this parable, and you see these things unfold, and you're trying to understand exactly what's going on. But at the heart of this passage is that Mark wants us to understand that salvation is both for Jew and both for Gentile. So let's go to our text, right? All that sets it up for us to be able to kind of flow through this, and hopefully that is helpful for you. By way of context, where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, remember we started this chapter with Jesus encountering a group of Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. Their desire was to what? Trip them up? To, to make him discredited? 
They saw him as an enemy. They did everything they could to to get a, a moment where they can point a finger at him. Their desire was to what? Eventually get him to the cross, right? To crucify, to murder him, to kill him. They saw no value in him and wanted to, to trip him up so as to rally the people against him and his message. Yet you and I both know when we looked at that passage, none of that happened, right? Jesus boldly addresses their sinful hearts and pointed out that their human tradition was woeful. It was woeful in the light of the word of God. That it didn't even compare Remember, it was a whole issue of hand washing and, and the fact that they didn't wash their hands before they ate and, and they were ceremonially unclean and, and all that was extra biblical. And Jesus says, you miss it. You're missing it. He then turns to his disciples and helps them understand the parable of how defiled the heart really is, that they were totally depraved. All that interaction, all that intensity leads us up to verse 24, where we find our text. Notice what it says again. Look at verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Now, it just seems like he just got up and just kind of removed himself from the situation, does it not? But there's a lot going on here. Do you realize this was about 120 miles to 150 miles away? And they didn't have cars. And so it took weeks for Jesus to take his disciples to walk from where he was. And he's walking to this region. He finally gets there and he enters a house. I think to some degree we can speculate why he's taking them away. I think he, you know, we can say that he definitely wants to invest in his disciples. It might be because he wanted some rest. We see this desire when the text says, and, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yeah, right, right? I mean, if I was to walk down Main Street with 12 of my friends, I think we would be noticed. And, and remember, I mean, word is getting out that Jesus is healing and healing and performing miracles, casting out demons. Word travels. I think what's interesting about this and what Mark wants us to understand is that Tyre, in the region where he went, he went as far as he could away from the land of Israel where he could possibly walk before he gets on a boat and gets in the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre was on... Uh, an area of the Mediterranean Sea. They were coastal cities. We know Tyre and Sidon, they were roughly 20 miles apart. They, they were they're throughout the scriptures. They were known for their pagan worship of Dagon. They, they were rank Gentiles. And Jesus and his disciples are deep in Gentile land. And so Jesus gets there in her house, a desire just to be him and his disciples. And yet, Scripture tells us he could not escape that notice.
I mean, it makes sense. Not only did they stick out with 12 guys coming down, but they were Jewish in nature, right? And you ever walk or been somewhere where you realize that you're from a different place than what you normally come from? They definitely stuck out. Now, what comes next is pretty remarkable. Verses 25 and 26, we see this persistent request of a woman for her daughter. It's pretty admiring to see her faith in Christ and, and just pleading for the Savior to cast out a demon. Before we dive into that, I just want to make a quick observation in this way. Jesus wanting to get away, if his desire was to not see the people, he didn't want to be noticed, and yet in turn, this lady comes to him, he doesn't shut the door of ministry on her. He's no doubt tired. Could you imagine walking 120 miles in Birkenstocks? And here he is, pleading of a lady. I looked at this, and it just humbles me. When you think about this, the ministry for the Lord was never an inconvenience for him. You understand that? Anita rose, he responded. For you that are working hard in ministry, this should be an encouragement to you. Even the Lord was tired. And yet he kept on pressing on for, the, for, for he knew the, the great things that God had him to do and he understood his plan and his purpose. I don't know about you, but when I rub shoulders with people who are doing ministry, we're tired. And that's a good thing. Why? Because it speaks of you being faithful. It speaks of you continuing to show up on Wednesday night to do Adventure Club. It, it continues to show up on Sunday morning to invest in Sunday school and the kids. It continuing to show up. I look at it this way. You're redeeming the time for the Lord. Knowing that the days are evil, knowing that this world is, is going south real quick, you're redeeming the time for the Lord. You're burning out for him. Listen, I think every faithful saint can't wait for the eternal rest that waits for them in heaven. So it's okay to be tired, doing the work of the ministry for the sake of the kingdom, to proclaiming Christ. That's exactly what we see modeled here by Christ himself. Now, to this woman's request for healing. Look at verse 25. But after hearing of him, I mean, she is, she's far away. She, she hears that the Jewish Messiah is in her, her presence. She no doubt had heard of his miracles. We know that by her persistent faith and her desire to see only as Jesus, the only one to help her in her need. So no doubt news traveled, not only about the miracles of Christ and what he was doing by the Sea of Galilee, but, but the reality that now Jesus is in her town. 
Remember, Mark has already told us about a couple times of the casting out of demons. Can you imagine hearing that with a mom whose little child is, is struggling with demon possession? That there's one who can cast out that demon? Was she desperate? Maybe. But was she full of faith, knowing that the Messiah was there? Absolutely. She was confident that Jesus was her answer. And she needed him to rescue her. And so she places all her hope into Jesus as she came to him. And to give a little bit more color, I mean, this is not just a a desperate woman coming to Jesus and asking for help. Mark tells us in verse 26, now the woman was a, a, a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast out the demon of her daughter, a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles don't mix, right? Gentiles are unclean. This Gentile woman would understand that, but she even herself ignored all the social norms to get to Christ. And in verse 25, it tells us that she came down and saw him and fell at his feet. Literally in the Greek, she worshipped him. Mark was very descriptive. She's from Syria. She's from the Phoenician race, who, by the way, hated Israel's God, right? Matthew, in his account, even says that she's a Canaanite. I mean, you talk about strike one, strike two, strike three. She had everything going against her. She was as Gentile as Gentile could be. And here you have the situation, you have this Jewish Messiah deep in the Gentile land interacting with a woman, a Gentile woman, who in every way would violate his traditional Jewish laws. And so she does, she pleads for mercy. And notice the text says, and she kept asking him. It wasn't just one time that she said, hey, Jesus, can you help me? She is persistent can keeping on asking Christ. You can imagine how uncomfortable the Jews, the disciples were already were, right, in the Gentile land, knowing what is our Lord doing here? We're following him to this place. And now this lady, you could almost, and Matthew tells us that, they pretty much said, hey, why don't you go away? Literally in the Greek, it has the idea that she kept on irritating him with this request. She reminds me in this time of season of a fly, you notice that? (laughs) Who keeps on pestering us. And all we want to do is just kill the fly, right? She wouldn't walk away because of her love for her daughter and her confidence in Jesus to heal her. And so Jesus responds to her in a parable. It's kind of interesting to see what's going on here. And it's interesting to see what the world does with this text, but I'll explain in just a little bit. So he responds to her in verse 27, and he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, 
for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Analogy, a parable. Jesus describes a meal here. And when you come to the table to eat, you feed the children first. Right? I mean, you wouldn't feed your dogs. We have three dogs. They know when it's dinner time. They all have their post on each side of the corners of the table waiting for crumbs to fall. Some feed them. I won't name any names. But here they are. And Jesus says it's not good to take food that is designed for children and be given to the dogs. All that Jesus is saying here is there's a priority here. Pretty simple. I mean, you feed the kids before any bit goes to the dogs. They get the scraps. I mean, when your wife cooks you a meal, she feeds you and the children first. She doesn't go and slave in the kitchen and prepare a meal just so Fido can have a little bit of meat. We're laughing over. Does that happen over in the Fisher's household? It feeds the dog first. Okay. Rearrange that. We'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> I mean, our wives don't go through all that work preparing a meal and just give it to the, to the lowest. To do so would show priority of the dogs over the family, right? And so very simply, the parable is about priority. I guess the question is, why does Jesus say this to her? And I think it's important to understand in the progression of the gospel, what is happening? He's literally pretty much saying, listen, the Jews have priority. They are the means in which God has chosen. They will have priority and then will come to the Gentiles. But the time is not yet. He's telling her that the time for the Gentiles is still future, that he's still dealing with his disciples. He's he's ministering to to the Jews. He's he's helping the religious leaders of the day to understand how wrong they are. He's telling her that Israel has a priority. I think in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus gives specific instructions to his disciples, we see this play out in verse 5 and 6. Look at the screen. These 12... Jesus sent out, after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. Now, doesn't that contradict what we were talking about earlier when we set up this passage? Why would Jesus say that That salvation is intended for the whole world, but now he's instructing his disciples to to only go to the house of Israel. I mean, the reason our Lord came to Israel in the first place was to bring salvation to Israel first. So listen, so that they could be the means to others. Again, aligning the priority of, of a nation, of chosen nation of Israel, being the light that they should be to dark pagan nations. And so he knew that there was problem with those who have rejected him, and he was sent to Israel first for the reality of getting their right understanding of their priority that they were to be used for the kingdom. By the way, 
Israel was to be a means to bring God and salvation of the Gentile nation. I mean, this was always the plan. Think about Romans 1.16. I don't know if you've looked at it this way. Romans 1.16 tells us and gives us this, this priority of the Jew first and the Gentile. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, Israel was never intended to be the end of God's saving purpose. They were to be the means in which his grace would be shown to Gentiles. And then we know that he had to send a vision to Peter to help him understand the, what's going on. Christ has come. He is salvation. He went to the, to the house of Israel. They have rejected him. And now you will now go to the Gentiles. And so you see these visions of unclean animals. And Jesus says what? Rise up and eat. Why? Because you are now going to the Gentiles and you will preach the good news of me to them. And so Jesus' parable here is, is a parable showing this priority of the working out of God's salvation to the whole world. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, well, okay, I get that, but then why did he call her a dog? Kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? I don't think that would be in our vernacular today. Hi, hi, you're, you're a dog. It doesn't seem nice. And by the way, this is where the feminists, the liberal feminists, they, they throw rocks at Christ here. They point out the fact that he is, he is just a mean savior. Remember, that wasn't Jesus' point. He, he's showing priority here. The kids first, and then anything that was left would be given to the dogs, showing priority. By the way, in the Greek, there's two words for dogs. There's, there's a word for dogs that, that would be your common scavenger dogs, the ones that roam the street. If you ever visit any foreign city and towns, you see these, these dogs that are just scavengers. That's not the word that he used here. He's, he's literally using a, a word for a, a house dog. It makes sense, right? Especially if the parable is, is, is at the dinner table. These would be pets. They would be loved. They would share in the food. And so in all reality, the liberal feminist gets it wrong. He's showing endearment by saying that you're a little dog. And so in this parable, the children were symbolic of Israel, and the house dogs would be the Gentiles. But this is where it gets really interesting. Jesus pretty much says this is the priority. This is what's going to happen. This is what will unfold. And she responds in verse 28. Look at it. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. I love that. Ter term of endearment, term of understanding of priority, term of, of understanding who he is. She agrees with the statement, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. I mean, she is witty. She, she has been given grace and discernment to be able to respond to the Lord in this way. She agrees with Jesus and says, yes, Lord, yes to the covenant promise for Israel, but even the food falls off the table. 
and dogs are able to eat it. She knows that she's outside. She knows that salvation is not necessarily for her and her people. Yet she also knows that, oh, for the grace of God to have the crumbs fall off so I can just get a little bit. She's asking for mercy. She calls him Lord. She believes him to be the anointed one. She no doubt has heard of his miracles and wants just enough grace to help her daughter. Pretty profound when you think about looking at her persistent faith. She's not going to turn away, knowing whom she has in front of them, in front of her, right? Again, just a side note. I mean, this is not a different meal that goes to the, to the, to the Jew and then to the Gentile. There's not two different meals. There's only one type of meal going on here, only one type of salvation that saves both. It's not a different table. It's not a different meal. Gentiles are not given a separate revelation, a separate object of faith, or a separate way of salvation. She understands clearly that Jesus is the only way. By the way, when you read Romans chapter 9, it explains that. It gives you great understanding of why the blessings go to Israel and, then, and how that spills over to the Gentiles. And then Jesus responds. He responds to her with great compassion and pronouncing a casting out of the demon, even though the child's not in his presence. You talk about the sovereign authority of Christ to be able to proclaim a demon to be gone when there is miles of distance or, or, or between him and her. And so in verse 29, 30, it reads, and he said to her, because of this answer, go. Jesus is saying, oh, you got the right answer. Now you open up the key. Now I'll give you grace. He understands that she understands that she understands that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior of the world. And so he says, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, here's the evidence. She found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Such control, such divine power. He pronounced the unclean demon to leave, and it left her. All that to say is power is omnipresent. It's his ability to, to cast it, to speak it, to show it. And when the woman showed up, she found her daughter lying on the bed, and the demon had left. Questions might be, well, what is she doing on the bed? You and I both know that in the encounters of, of demon possession is that the demons, they, they bring a tired Wearsome, weak, they leave a shell of a person pretty much. In their tormenting, in their desire, we know in Scripture that often when, 
when Jesus would cast out, we, we would see the person that was demon-possessed, they would be in convulsions until they, their bodies settled down. All I have to say, Jesus showed compassion. Why? Because she had great faith in him. What Jesus, Jesus promised came to pass. And by the way, every time Jesus promised something, it will come to pass. She believed that in the Jewish Messiah, and she also understood that in this Jewish Messiah, in this progression of salvation, that there was going to be room for her, a Gentile. And Jesus pretty much confirms it and says, yes, there is. By showing his grace, showing his mercy. I look at a text like this, and and I'm just... I mean, my takeaway to this is just awestruck. How many of us are Gentiles here in this room? Is there any, let me say it the other way, is there any Jews here? The Gads. There's always one. (laughs) But for the rest of us, this speaks of great mercy and great joy that Christ considers you to be saved. It should cause us to be in awe of the salvation that you behold. This God who brings salvation in his right timing for us to gather even on this day to hear of his grace and mercy to a Gentile woman Yes, you must repent. Yes, you must believe. That's what's going on behind the text. You know that in her heart she understands Jesus is the only way. And that is true for you. If you don't know Christ, you must know Christ. And you must understand that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. And you must believe that he is the only object of our faith in order to save me. I think there's more that you can glean from this text, but... I walk away in light of the time that we have just in awe of what our our Lord has done and what he's doing. I mean, I just wanted to say amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for an understanding of how just in an interaction with a persistent mother, you continue to show us the plan of salvation and and how its reach is going to even go to the Gentiles. For the understanding, there was only just two races. The Jews saw themselves as priority and everybody else were Gentiles. And yet your salvation is not a respecter of persons. It gives grace to all those who cry out for forgiveness, who cry out for mercy, who desire to be saved by the only one who can save them. Jesus, we love you. We're in all that all that you continue to do. We, we marvel at texts like this, knowing that you showed your your compassion, even in the midst of being tired, in the midst of being worn, in the midst of wanting not to be noticed. 
And yet you were kind enough to say that there's, there's room in the kingdom for such individuals as this. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. May it cause us to praise you all the more. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.